But anyhow, good morning. Nice to gather together on the day that we remember the fact that Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead on the third day, according to the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures, that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Has anybody ever thought, I'm going to mention this just briefly in my sermon, but while we're waiting for people to get here, what scripture in the Old Testament says that Jesus was raised on the third day? This is a, it's not a trick, just deep, try it as a pop quiz, okay. Uh, oh, yeah, that, that's the New Testament, but what, what Old Testament one is Paul referring to? I got an idea I'm going to say, but I want to just see if anybody else ever explored that. How about you, Eric? That's the right answer. So we got these seminary trained people here. It's just not fair to everybody else. <laughs> I totally agree. It's, it's Psalm 1610. Thou wilt not allow thy holy one to undergo decay. And the Jews, if you remember when Lazarus was raised, it was the fourth day. And they said, uh, don't open the grave, he stinks. <laughs> and uh, because they, they believed that the decay starts on the fourth day. And so, therefore, Psalm 1610 is a scripture predicting Jesus' resurrection on the third day. And it's the one that was cited by Peter in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. Psalm 16 in verse 10. So there you go. Somebody had the answer. <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Before we pray, I want to make a little quick thing about the term Easter, because this comes up, and I I say something every year, okay? There are websites out there saying that you should never have Christmas or Easter because they're pagan, and that if you have Christmas and Easter, then that proves that you have dipped into paganism. Now, it's true that the terminology, Christmas and Easter, comes from pagan background. It's true that... Celebrating Jesus' birth on the 25th is pagan. All right, so we don't believe that Jesus was actually born on December 25. And if you notice in the Bible, do you ever see them talking about celebrating birthdays? They didn't really talk about it. They, they remember when somebody died, but they tended not celebrate birthdays. So now, we're not claiming that Jesus was born on December 25th. And we're not claiming that the Bible says that we're obligated to have a holiday. In the New Covenant, now another pop quiz, in the New Covenant, what holidays are ordained that Christians must keep? Yeah, the Lord's Supper, but that's not on a certain day. Yeah, okay. What does the Scripture say? There's a passage in Romans 14 that says some people take all days to be the same, some some people take some to be special. All right? So if we want to have some special day, we can decide to have it, but it's not required. Okay? Now, as far as the term Easter, yeah, it has a pagan derivation. But here's something you need to know about language. All languages, and just true for English or any other language, usage determines meaning, not etymology. Do you know what etymology is? It's a study of the roots of where a term came from. And sometimes it's an interesting thing, and it might shed some light on meaning, but sometimes it's very misleading, because the term may come from somewhere, but in current usage means something entirely different. Now, as Keith pointed out, the days of the week 
are all pagan. Thursday is Thor's day. Now, if we say we're going to have a meeting on Thursday, does that prove that we're going to celebrate Thor's birthday or that we're going to have a pagan festival? No, usage determines meaning, okay? Usage determines meaning. And so in modern English, the term Easter means the day of Christ's resurrection, which Christians remember. That's all it means. It doesn't mean you're pagan if you use that term. And it's easier just to use the terms that are currently in use than to try to create your own unique Christian vocabulary that nobody else knows about. I mean, we can create our own Christian days of the week instead of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, but, you know, that'd be kind of hard to do. So we live in a pagan world, but the fact is terminology doesn't prove paganism. Usage determines meaning because we're just trying to communicate. Now, Having said that, let's have a time of prayer and we'll delve into 2 Corinthians. Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday that we gather. And this one in particular, we celebrate your resurrection from the dead. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming and dying for our sins and being raised on the third day. And we gather today with our hearts full of expectation as we want to hear the word of God proclaimed to us. We want to understand its meaning. We want to make applications and be obedient to what you say. And we ask for grace to that end. We pray for the scattered flock around the world, for their well-being, that your grace and mercy would come to them. We greet them in in your name with peace, shalom, and we thank you for them. We commit this day to you in thy holy name. Amen. Okay. We are in 2 Corinthians. Now, last week, we were talking about means of grace and about grace being sufficient. We were on verse 9, Paul's answer from God when he prayed for the thorn to be removed was, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. And afterwards, Rich and Steve came up and asked a really good question, I, and, and I thought everybody else should hear that question. I thought it was very good. I've got an impromptu question for you here. Okay, it has to do with the thorn in the flesh and the grace of God and the relationship of it. How does that manifest? Is a thorn in the flesh, is that grace? The thorn itself. The thorn itself. The thorn is, is not grace or even a means of grace. The thorn is part of God's providence. Okay. And I, th- I don't know if we made this distinction last week or not, but let me make a distinction. And it's very important when we understand these concepts. We've got to understand the concept. My next article is going to be about, again, about means of grace. Because somebody is teaching spiritual disciplines, and I have to refute those by teaching means of grace. Okay. Concept that I want you to know. What God has ordained for us that he says he will graciously meet us is a means of grace. So if God says, come do this in faith and I will meet you, or implies it, then we can, in faith and obedience, do what he said and grace comes to us. Now, as I said last week, the primary means of grace, more important than every other and really in a sense encompassing the others, is the word of God. So So Jesus is saying to us, 
read my word, believe my word, sit under the preaching of my word, trust what I say in my word, and I will meet you. Okay, that's implied. And it's more than implied. It's stated in his high priestly prayer where he says, sanctify them in thy word. Thy word is true. So there's sanctifying power in the word of God. So if we sit under the word of God and believe it, we have a promise from God that he'll sanctify us. Okay, now, here's something that's very, very important. Everything that causes progress in our Christian life is by faith. It's by faith. By, by grace through faith. By, by faith. Which one is it? Ephesians 2.8. By, by grace through faith. There you go. Okay. I knew it was one of those. And that's how God meets us. And, and, and it's not true that you start the Christian life by grace through faith and then you proceed by some other means. Because it says in Colossians, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. Okay? Now, if God made a promise and we come to him and believe him, that's where he meets us and we grow by grace through faith. Now, God did promise he'd meet us through the word. So if we come and sit under the word, he'll sanctify us. He, he told us to, to remember the Lord's Supper. Okay? To do this in remembrance of me. Why? Because the Christian life is centered about the work of God he does through the cross, what Jesus did for us, and the promise that he's returning. So when we come and receive communion, we're doing so in faith, and we're remembering the Lord's death and proclaiming his soon return. And, to, and saying to him corporately, we long for the Lord's return. That's a gracious thing. God meets us. So therefore, it's a means of grace. Now, the thorn in the flesh doesn't fit that category. All right? God did not say, go find a big thorn and stick it in your flesh, and then my grace will be sufficient for you. He didn't say that. So Paul didn't go find a thorn to stick in his flesh. Paul just went about life, and the thorn came. Now, the distinction then would be what God's ordained, that he promised he'd meet us, and what God uses providentially, which he's in charge of. All right? So providence, God does. But there's still a promise. And he says, the promise is this, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And the promise is that God is graciously working in the life of every Christian. So you go through life and the thorns show up. You don't need to look for them. In fact, you shouldn't want them. If you want them, there's something wrong with you. Because Paul didn't want the thorn. He says, please remove it three times. But if God doesn't, then the promise is that God will meet us. But see, the, uh, the, So what he ordained, we go do purposely. What he allows providentially, he does, but he still meets us in it. Does that make sense? I got a verse that kind of goes along with that. Okay, and then Keith. Okay, go ahead. Uh, it just talks about God's sovereignty in, sovereignty in Psalms 33, 13, and 14. The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From the place of his dwelling, he looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually. Okay? He takes care of us one by one. All right, Keith. I was just thinking that if you think back to Abraham, the means of grace are the same because Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. So he grew in righteousness by believing God. And all we're saying is that God's given us promises that are also certain and true by the Scripture. And as we believe God, 
we also have righteousness credited to us, or we grow in grace, we grow in righteousness by our belief in God's promises, which is exactly the same way it's always happened. Exactly. Now, I remember what I said last week about this. Forgive me if I'm redundant. But this this article is going to come out in a couple weeks. I'm rebuking a guy for teaching spiritual disciplines. Now, it, it might shock some people, okay? They might think, well, how can you be so harsh against something that people have believed for centuries? It's true, they have. A.W. Tozer was, in a sense, a mystic. He said, you've got to learn how to hear the voice of God, and then pretty soon you know what it is. And he's quoted by this guy. No, I don't care if A.W. Tozer was a nice guy. He was dead wrong. And he cannot teach the church that they need to, they need to get new revelations to be good Christians. And so all kinds of people believe these things. All kinds of people believe that you need to keep a journal. All kinds of people believe that you need to do this and do, need to do that and you need to do the other thing to be spiritually disciplined. But here is what they're missing. Here's the blind spot. This is the blind spot the size of a barn door or whatever. But they can't see it. I don't know why these really smart theologians can't see this. Faith needs an object. Faith is not a metaphysical entity. Faith is not something that you can go buy or get or find in the universe like the Word of Faith people teach. Faith is believing. The verb form, pistuo in the Greek, the noun form, pistis. Faith, now in English we have, it doesn't seem like they're connected because believe and faith sound like two different words. But they're related, the noun and the verb. Okay, to believe needs an object. The biblical object of faith is God and his promises. Remember in Hebrews it talked about there's two unchangeable things. That God cannot lie and God swore. God's oath and God's promise are unchangeable. And Abraham believed what God said in Genesis 22 when he brought Isaac and offered him. And then, therefore, he was justified because he believed God. All right, now, here's the difference. Please get this. Please understand this. This will save you sorrow. It will keep you from joining a commune, all right, (laughs) or a monastery. Please understand this. If God has not said, keep a journal and I will meet you, then I can't keep a journal in faith because I have no promise. He hasn't said that. I'm not saying it's a sin to keep a journal. I'm saying it's a sin to tell people they must keep a journal if they want to be sanctified. And I read a book where a guy did that, and I'm rebuking him very strongly, lovingly but strongly. And and I'll say to that man, I will not keep a journal. I refuse to keep a journal, and I'm not rebelling against God. And I'm not afraid that I'm not going to be sanctified because God never told me that. I believe God's promise. I don't believe some man who thinks he knows how to be spiritual. Another one, silence and solitude. Dallas Willard says solitude is, you cannot grow unless you go into the silence and the solitude. Well, how can you say that if God never promised it? And they said, well, Jesus went out in the wilderness. That's true. And he also walked on water and he also took a whip and beat up the guy's Chased them out of the temple. There's all kinds of things Jesus did. The issue is not what Jesus did. The issue is what Jesus told us to do. And so how is it that I have to go sit in the wilderness of solitude to be sanctified and Jesus and Paul and John and all the apostles and the Holy Spirit who inspired the Bible never remember to tell me that? 
How come God can't tell me what I need to do? Well, he did. So, beloved, if you have your own private practices is how you like to be, if you like to spend time in quiet, in solitude, if you like to keep a journal, and if you like to take a long walk along the lake, and while you do so, pray, God bless you. Don't let me discourage you. But you can't make religious claims for practices God never ordained. And you might say, well, it's harmless. It's harmless. No, it's not harmless. Because you're going to end up with a Luther before his conversion eventually. Because eventually somebody's going to feel the weight of guilt on them and feel their own inadequacies and think that they're not good enough and, they're not, and they know they have evil thoughts in their heart and their mind and they know that they have lust and they know that they're not very disciplined and they're feeling this and then, okay, well, the solitude's not working and the walk along the lake's not working and the journal's not working and the fasting's not working, but I wonder if I joined a monastery and had them chain me up against a granite wall and I hung there in my misery for long enough, I would get holy. And you'd think, why would anybody do that? Because everything else didn't work. And they still feel their sin. Like Luther. And he did more and more extreme things, trying to get holy, and he couldn't find it. It was hopeless, and he could not ever escape his wicked sin. No matter what he did, he did everything the church had to offer, could not get any relief, no peace, no sanctification, no holiness. And he was reading Romans. And it comes a thunderbolt from heaven. A lightning bolt that changed the world. My just one shall live by faith. And dear ones, our faith is in God and His promises, not in our works. All right? The boundaries have to be somewhere. And I say the boundaries are set by Scripture, not by experimentation. Yes? And what... What happens is if I create a spiritual discipline and I make that discipline the object of my faith, I've created a delusion for myself. Now instead of coming to God in the means of grace, which he's really said, I'm coming to a, a fictional God that I've created because I've created a fictional promise. And if I find what I think is God there... May not be. Is that the God of the it Bible? It isn't the God of the Bible. No. And I'm coming to an idol, and I'm coming away from God, yeah. even as much as I'm feeding closer to God. So the people that think it works are the most deluded because now they've come and created a false God for themselves. Yeah. Here's another one. Not everybody is as blessed as Luther was. Let me tell you something. How was Luther blessed? He was blessed providentially by God in the fact that he knew he was a lost, miserable sinner, and he felt far from God. But you know what's worse? What's way worse than what happened to Luther. Ten times worse than what happened to him. Being miserable and feeling lost and hopeless is, that, is a, the Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Here's what's worse. Here's what's worse. Here's what's worse. Uh, a young person, I saw a picture. Uh, if you look at the pictures of the emerging church, here's a person walking the prayer labyrinth. Okay, and you go here, and you go here, and you walk here, and then you get to the center, and that's when God meets you. Now, does it seem innocent enough? Maybe it seems innocent, but here's the problem. What happens? Of course, there's no gospel in the prayer labyrinth. I don't know if I ever pronounced that right in my life. Is that, what, did I get it right finally? Oh, and I owe R.C. Sproul apology. I called him Sproul. Sproul, somebody emailed me who heard the Sunday school, says, Sproul rhymes with soul. (laughs) 
So the, I, I get corrected in my diction, which I appreciate. I, I, it doesn't bother me when people... <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Now, so the labyrinth, if that's how you say it, here's the danger. You don't have any gospel. You don't have the real promise of God. And you get to the center of the thing and you actually feel really good. You feel warm. You feel love gushing through your soul. You feel closer to God than you ever felt before. That's way worse than being Luther feeling like God's going to kill me. Because you feel close to God. That's Satan's biggest trick to keep you away from God. Allow people to feel close to God without the gospel. That's false assurance. That's damnable. That's wicked. And so people wonder why they think I'm so harsh by saying don't do this. I'm not being harsh. I love people. I, I don't want them to be lost. I don't want them to be deluded. I want them to see the need for the true gospel and find forgiveness through faith and know they're close to God because they have a high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father who always lives to make intercession for them and not feel close because they're sitting in the woods. Yes. Back to the journaling and silence. Yeah. Okay. I think that you might comment about why you specifically decided to write about this because you've talked about it before. You didn't randomly pick a book off the shelf. This guy had some credentials. Okay. The reason I'm writing this next article was that there's a guy by the name of Donald Whitney who teaches these things at Southern Seminary, which is a strong, conservative, gospel-oriented seminary and that holds to a Reformed understanding of soteriology, which is salvation, and is... Uh, headed up by Moeller, who's a great guy, and has some great professors there. And I've got uh, emails, letters, calls for the last two years from people, in fact, maybe back three years, saying, is this Donald Whitney okay because he's teaching spiritual disciplines for reform people? And I thought, well, there's probably worse apples in the bushel. To <laughs> and I kind of just poo-pooed it and didn't pay attention until I finally had somebody almost beg me to, to review Whitney. So I finally got his book and I read it and I thought, this is horrible. And the thing that shocks me is that the people around him obviously can't see that there's anything wrong. And that I don't get. And maybe, maybe part of it, I, I, Diane mentioned this to me, we were talking about it one time. And part of the reason maybe that I see these things is because I've made the error myself. Okay? I used to believe in spiritual disciplines and I did everything I could to follow them. I was on a quest to be the best Christian in the entire Bible college. In a weird way, it sounded like a good thing, but it was a very bad thing. And I I, I thought, okay, if somebody prayed 10 hours, I'd have to pray 20. If somebody fasted one day, I had to fast two. If somebody read so much Bible, then I had to read more than them. And finally, I went and joined a commune where we could do all this 24 hours a day and not be distracted by, in our pursuit of holiness, by having to do mundane things like work a job and take care of a family. All right? The whole thing ended up in disaster. And when I finally got out of it, the, the glorious truth, that's why Luther is an inspiration to me. Okay? The glorious truth that happens is when you realize you're so hopelessly wicked that it's only God's grace and mercy that he even tolerates you in his kingdom. 
And that the only way you're ever going to be sanctified is just throwing yourself at Jesus' feet, trusting him and believing that God's going to help us and putting ourselves under the means of grace. Because agape love isn't determined by feeling. Remember Jesus, or Paul said that if you give your body to be burned and you don't have love, okay, you could do every kind of sacrifice in the world, and if you don't have agape love, you're worthless. And agape love only comes from God through the Holy Spirit that he graciously brings to sinners. And I think that some of the people that don't see what's wrong, it's because they were raised in the truth, and they have kind of a balanced view all of their life. They were, they, they were taught well as children. They went to good seminaries. And somebody comes along and says, well, journaling will help. They, they don't see it as an alarm because it doesn't really on the surface look like a bad thing. But as a matter of fact, it's a horrible problem. And I don't know what's going to happen because now I'm withstanding some of the most important people out there. And I'm going to do so in public. And I'm just going to let it, let the, whatever. Chips fall where they may. It doesn't sound like a very Christian idea. Chips falling. Um, what happens, happens. But I, I think it's worth somebody raising the issue and say, do we believe in means of grace or do we believe in spiritual disciplines? And the two ideas are incompatible. Okay, so thank you, Rich. I thought it was a great question. Uh, is the thorn in the flesh a means of grace? No, other than if God gives you one and he providentially works through it. But it's not something we put ourselves under. Okay, so it says in Colossians 2 that severe treatment of the body has, has no value against fleshly indulgence. There's enough thorns in the flesh without thinking of, of your own. <laughs> I would prefer to be happy, healthy, and have enough money. doesn't always work that way, but that's my preference. Yes, Patrick. Okay, so we know that God can sanctify anyone through anything providentially. He can yes. use the thorn in the flesh. He can use sin itself. He can use uh, bad things that happen, good things that happen, whatever. Yes. We shouldn't seek those. We should seek only what God has promised that he will meet us in. Yes. Okay. So we should not then say, when suppose someone is journaling or doing a labyrinth, we shouldn't say to them, God cannot meet you in that because God, in a sense, can sanctify them through that. Rather, we said we should convince them of the fact that they should not be pursuing God in that way. Right, because then, God had, there's no promise. Right, and God can sanctify them through anything. God yeah, can he, sanctify them he, through elaborate he, Yeah, but, he'll, but if it's a sinful thing, he'll judge it. Correct, yeah. exactly. So he, sin, God can sanctify you by allowing you to go into sin and then judging you. Right, and so... Uh, but to, it's not the very good seek, idea. To actually seek God in a means he has not ordained is a sin, right? It's a sin, yeah. yeah. In that case, if somebody's seeking God and seeking sanctification in a labyrinth or something, what, there's, what you're saying is that they're actively seeking God by sinning. Yeah. So if I wanted to seek God and get close to him by committing adultery and by stealing and by murdering, it would be the same concept. If I want to get sanctified by murdering people. Well, and, right. and if you pursue that and God uses civil, you're not going to come to a God. God is equally glorified when he damns somebody or when he saves somebody. Right. You're some, find, so you're going to find a mishta where God ends yeah. up damning you, and in as much as damning is sanctification, I suppose you could call well, it Well, you that. might murder somebody and end up in jail, and, and somebody gives you a Bible and you get saved. But you might murder somebody, end up in jail, get executed, and end up in hell too. That's true. And that is a, you know, and, well, we're, we're strictly against it. 
We've got to get back to our thorn in the flesh here. One more. Glenn, and then we go back to the text here. We've got to talk about the grace being sufficient. Paul did mention in the thorn in the flesh that um, he's being puffed up by his experience and pride. And what came out of it in the thorn in the flesh is it produced humility. Yes. How are you going to handle humility now? That's, that's important. Providentially, God produces humility instead of pride. Yeah. That looks like sanctification to me. It is. That is sanctification. And it's sanctification because Paul responded to it in faith. Sanctification is always, remember, by grace through faith. So when the thorn in the flesh comes, rather than getting angry at God, rather than getting bitter, or rather becoming unbelieving by saying, well, God must not exist because how could he allow this to happen? Paul believed God and was willing to accept his, his grace as a legitimate answer to his request in prayer. And so it's still the, the sanctifying thing that's necessary for us is grace expressing itself in faith, putting ourselves under and believing. So believing is so important. So, dear ones, if you go through your own thorn in the flesh, and that term now has come into our language through the Bible as a metaphor. Okay, we use the term thorn in the flesh to describe some terrible thing that happens that we can't get rid of. If you have your thorn in the flesh, if you respond in faith like Paul did, the result is sanctification. But the thorn in the flesh is in the control of God, not us. That's it. The things that are in our control is whether or not we'll put ourselves under the means of grace. We'll come and sit under the Bible, believe what it says, and respond in faith. Now, let's go back to verse 9. And he has said, perfect active. Now, I can't remember who, I see Barnett here, that this may have been actually something that was said to Paul when he saw the resurrected Christ. That's an idea I wanted to. Here's what Barnett says. The Lord's oracle to him is clear and communicable, and it is nothing else than the given word of God, the gospel of Christ, the death resurrection of Christ. This was Paul's answer to Paul, and Paul told his readers, has told his readers what the Lord said. So by saying this, this is actually the word of the Lord for us. My grace is sufficient for you. Now, this is a principle that would be true for us as well. Sufficient is present active tense in the Greek. Grace and power, notice, my grace is sufficient for powers perfected. Notice a synonymously parallel construction. That helps us understand. Uh, I'm going to talk about one in my sermon to help us understand what shalom, peace, means in the Bible. But here's one. Grace is synonymously parallel with power. Grace is God's powerful, divine enabling. So when you receive grace, grace is not just God overlooking sin. Grace is God bringing enabling power into our lives. Some people say mercy is God not giving us what we deserve, and grace is God giving us what we don't deserve which is enabling power. It's God actually imparting something. So his power, the power of God, is perfected. Now, the word perfected in the Greek here is teleo. Someone Friday night marvelously ex- explicated that Greek word, teleo. Were you there Friday night? Can anybody say amen to those seven presenters? Amen. Wow. I, every, t- every year it gets better, and... 
I, they keep raising the bar, and the next year another seven come in. Boom, they hit us with the gospel, and they expound the scripture. And my fear is that I think the elders may decide to cut the budget and just get rid of me. <laughs> we got enough preachers, so look at them. Look at them. It's funny how Barb uh, explicated te- telestai, which is a perfect tense version of teleo, uh, and it was marvelous. So that means to bring to completion. Boy, she really laid that out there. Bring to completion, uh, bring to fulfillment, brought to where it needs to be, um, perfected in weakness. And so we might think that the best thing for God is if we were really strong in everything. We had everything we needed. We were in perfect health. We were really strong. We had all the talent you could ever want. And then maybe God could do something with us. But the principle explained here is really quite the opposite of that. Because the number one thing that poisons Christian service is pride. I mean, isn't that kind of obvious just from looking at church history? What's happened when Christian ministries turned into a status thing where you get glorious robes and you are prated in front of people as being some holy person way better than everybody else, but it poisons it. So anything that would tend to push pride is a poison pill for the gospel. Because the gospel, uh, we, pre- we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul preaches the crucified Messiah. Paul preaches a, a Christ who was crucified in weakness, but raised in power. And so the humility comes from the fact that we really understand that it's nothing but a miracle that God can use any of us. Is a miracle of his grace. So power is perfected in weaknesses, asthenia. And I was going to quote Barnett again. Christ's power is now imparted to him by the risen Lord, only arose out of his powerlessness in crucifixion. In the divine dispensation, there had to be weakness, crucifixion, before there was power, resurrection. In the thinking of the triumphalist opponents, Remember the super apostles? However, there was no crucifixion, no weakness, only a valuing of power. And we talked about that before. In the thinking of the, excuse me, but, but the onset of the stake slash thorn provoked Paul to pray and in all probability to reflect on the weakness and powerlessness of Christ in crucifixion and the power of Christ in resurrection. And then Barnett goes on to say on this, As children of Adam, despite this worldly instruments of power as they may wield, intellect, health, wealth, influence, or position, they do, sooner or later, become powerless and vulnerable. Upon such persons who in their powerlessness, whether bodily, relational, financial, or structural, call out to the Lord, the grace of Christ is shown and the power of Christ rests. The words of the Lord spoken to Paul then are universally applicable. They do not, however, call for resignation, which is passive and impersonal, but for acceptance, which is active and obedient to the Lord, who in response to our prayer continues to say, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfect in weakness. Now we have the word of God the person of God, and the power of God as a promise 
that we can have faith in. So Paul's thorn in the flesh becomes something for us to all understand the ways of God. And so, dear ones, whatever your battles and weaknesses are, asthenia in the Greek, whatever they are, if you trust God, his power will be perfected in your weakness. And all of this is really quite temporary because it won't be long and it will be with the Lord. Because remember what started Paul's thorn in the flesh? He got a glimpse of paradise. And it was so glorious that he saw things that was not lawful for men to utter. But just for having seen what it's like there, he had to be staked to the ground with the thorn or the stake. So we can trust that whatever he saw that we don't know what it was is so glorious that when we get there, all of this stuff will seem like nothing. It'll seem like a dream that you just woke up from. So, oh, that was a big deal. It seemed real at the time. Yes. Yeah, I'm glad that you're coming against these, uh, these false teachers and false teachings uh, because uh, works is the antithesis of grace. It produces pride. Yes. And uh, if you just look at the, the gospel that uh, all those that are saved... It's done through the grace of God. We're all given a measure of faith, which is proved and tested through the thorns and trials. And through the weakness, uh, God gets the glory. And it's the, you know, he gets the glory through our weakness and the power of his gospel. Amen. That's why pride, you might think, well, it's not a big deal. Everybody has pride. Well, the fact is, it will send us right to hell. Will pride send you to hell? It, it, it will if you think that you don't need the gospel. If you think you can work your way to heaven, that pride is destroying you, destroying you spiritually. And uh, that's what was happening to me before I was converted. Uh, according to Garland, he says this, If Paul boasted in his own strength, thinking that by himself he is equal to any task or any calamity, he would then cancel out the power of God in his life. He's therefore most powerful when he's least reliant on his own resources. His own resources. Oh, here's that quote I was looking for from Dr. Martin. One of my many wonderful resources. This was another person who had the same idea that I did a long time ago, and I wondered if anybody else ever even thought this. And here was uh, Dr. Martin. uh, he says this, Paul's use of the perfect and the heiress together in 12, 8 and 9 appears as a conscious attempt on his part to tell the Corinthians that he had ceased to petition God to remove the thorn, heiress, while it still keeps the answer as an ever-present source of comfort, perfect. Heiress is point in, tense, point in time. Perfect is something that happened at a point and continues to be in effect. In 12, 9, though the answer was a thing of the past, it resounded with vibrancy and vitality in the present. The answer was final, but it also was advantageous for Paul, for it was a means of strength to him. The words recorded here, here's what he says, interesting. The words recorded here may have been a direct communication to Paul from Christ. These may be the only words of the risen Christ that we find in Pauline literature. So... I thought about that, too, because he, he says, he has said to me. So I wonder if one of the times when the, the resurrected Christ appeared to Paul, remember, as one born out of season, so that he saw the Lord, that the Lord told him that directly. And then he brought that, that saying of Jesus that he heard from him to his mind at a later date. 
So I had that idea a long time ago when I was studying the tense, the perfect, and so here's somebody else. So it doesn't mean I'm right, but at least if I'm wrong, I have company. <laughs> it makes me comforted. <laughs> Patrick. In this Zondervan study Bible, they're in red letters, so uh, Kenneth Barker, the editor of it, agrees with you. Agrees with you. Okay, there's three of us. Hey, the evidence is building. Red letters. These are actually the words of Jesus that is spoken audibly and tangibly to Paul, not just an idea. Because I once asked, I was trying to find this thing, because people assume that, what, that prayer is a two-way conversation in the sense that you tell God things and God tells you things. And so that people are just accumulating thousands and thousands of words from God over a lifetime. Um, and I challenged that. I challenged that. And I said, okay, show me in the Bible where that's how prayer is described. And typically, look in, go to Hebrews, go to wherever prayer. And uh, I asked Ryan Havana about that. And, and I said, can you think of an instance? And the only one he could think of was this one here. When, when the thorn in the flesh, when Paul prayed and he got an answer. But if this reconstruction is correct, and the perfect means he had said, that really it wasn't that Paul got a mystical idea in his mind. It's that it, was, it called to mind some objective thing that Jesus had said directly to him in the flesh. So then you have zero cases of prayer being this two-way thing. Now, there is two ways. Let me, let me explain this, okay? Because... Like I was saying earlier about this article, people feel like I'm taking something away from them, and I don't believe that I am. There's a two-way thing going on in prayer. Uh, uh, Carla, could you look up Hebrews 4:16 and then read it to us? And let's discuss that. This this makes me the fact that I teach this makes me not Lutheran. But, and I, I love my Lutheran friends, but the Lutherans do not think that prayer is a means of grace. And some, like Charles Hodge, Reformed theologian, does. This verse seems is the reason I'm willing to say that it is. Okay, Hebrews 4.16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Okay, so there is a two-way thing going on. We pray and we receive. But what we receive is not new revelations, we receive, what did Carla read? Mercy, because this is a throne of grace. We receive mercy. God doesn't tr- treat us according to our sins because we're appealed to him, appealing to him based on the finished work of Christ. The, the blood of Jesus washed away our sins. So we receive mercy. But what else do we receive? Grace. Well, I think that settles it right there. The prayer is a means of grace. We receive grace. Now, what else do we receive? We receive grace to help when? In a time of need. But if you look that up in the Greek, I wonder if this is broadcast. Yeah, it has. Maybe you heard this on our radio show. We were talking about this. The Greek, the word time there means timely. So what we receive is timely help. So we don't receive this big reservoir of help and we can draw out of it later. What we receive is timely help. In other words, at the crucial moment, when we really need it the worst, God's help comes. Now, how many of you wish we got the reservoir instead? Wouldn't that be... <laughs> would you make, it's, like, it's like Abraham going up to sacrifice Isaac. Okay, he's, he's, he's got the wood, you know, and he's taking his... Well, where are we going? 
and what's going to happen. And, and imagine the horrible thoughts and difficulties Abraham's having, thinking this, all of these promises and all the battles, and finally I've got Isaac, and finally there's an heir, and so that the seed could come, and the, and the, and the blessings will come to the families of the earth. And, and now the Lord is telling me I must sacrifice my own son. But what did he receive? Because he went in faith. Timely help. Just at the moment, the thing is stopped, and there is the ram in the thicket. And he received timely help. Beloved, if you go to the Lord in prayer, trusting him, you're not looking for, well, did God say this or did God say that? I think that was God. I don't know if that was God. That's not what you're looking for. You go to the Lord in prayer and you receive grace that changes you from the inside out. Yes, absolute grace that makes you a different person, a person of faith, a person of courage, a person of trust. And you receive timely mercy, grace, timely help. And you don't know how the timely help is going to come, but it will be timely at the crucial moment when you really need it. God's going to take care of you. So there's the promise of God. Now, well, you can believe that because it's a promise. See, Hebrews 4.16 is a promise. And because it's a promise, we can believe in faith and we can come to the throne of grace in faith because God promised to meet us. So we're not putting faith in our works. We're not putting faith in our piety. We're not putting faith on how holy we think we might be compared to somebody else. Isn't that kind of a dumb thing to think? I wonder how holy I am compared to these other people. There's no use thinking about that because that will lead you into all kinds of strange things. Here's, here's what we need to think about, and it's a very scary thought. I wonder how holy I am compared to Christ in his eyes. Well, I don't know. What a, it doesn't matter about everybody else. I know I need grace and mercy in the blood of Jesus. That's what I know I need. Okay. All right. So, we come to him, we receive. I have some cross-references. Uh, Troy's Exodus 3, 11 and 12. Patrick, Joshua, uh, Joshua 1, 9. Joanne, Isaiah 35, 3 and 4. And Dick, Matthew 5, 11 and 12. I'll go a little slower. I know you're writing here. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. And then uh, Larry, Matthew, no, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 3, 5 and 6. Judith, Daniel, do you have a Bible? You can, I got one for you too, so you better stand at attention here. You're looking too relaxed. Okay. No, we, oh, wait a second. I, I was wrong because I already gave Hebrews 4.16, and that was one of them. So Judith gets this one. 1 Peter 4.13 and 14. We already did Hebrews 4.16. Okay, Exodus 3.11 and 12. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Okay, so a sign that God had made his promise to Israel that he's going to fulfill through Moses' leadership was that they're going to come back. And they did. They came back to Sinai. And look at that. Talk about timely help. We're talking about grace to help in time of need or timely help. Look at Moses. Look at Israel. Abraham gets a promise that they're going to be 400 years and he's going to bring them out with a mighty hand. 
after the iniquity of the Amorites are fulfilled. And Moses tries to kill, kill or he kills one of the Egyptians and runs off for 40 years in Midian. And there he sits. And then all of a sudden, here God appears tangibly on the scene of history as the angel of the Lord who says, I am that I am. And he, and he makes a promise. This is what's going to happen. Once God makes the promise, we believe God. Okay. I watched uh, Moses with the kids last night. So this oh, did you see that? It's really fresh. I tell you, if you haven't seen that in a while, it, it is so incredible, the, the, just the power of God there and, and uh, how he worked things out with the, Egypt, with the, uh, with yeah. the Jews. Yeah, Charlton Heston, uh, he's talking about the Ten Commandments, the movie. Can, can, can you imagine that they did that in 1956? They don't have a computer to make all this stuff? Wow. That's a good movie. When I got saved, I wanted to go. They had it in the theater even in 71. The year I got saved was in the theater in downtown Sheldon, Iowa. Yeah, I was in the theater. And I was going to go to it, but the church where I got saved had a law that you couldn't go to movies. So I thought, well, I don't want to be, I don't want to sin as a new Christian. So I went to the pastor and asked him that if, if it was the Ten Commandments, could I go? And he said, no, you can't go because somebody might see you go into the theater and they'd be offended. So I didn't go. So I've only seen it on TV, and I hear I had my big chance. But I don't belong to that church anymore. I just I would just go. <laughs> okay, Patrick, go ahead. Joshua one eight. Uh, Joshua one nine. Okay. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Yeah, I mean, that's really parallel to the idea of my grace is sufficient for you. Why did it take them 40 years later before they get to Joshua? Because they didn't believe God. They didn't believe his grace is sufficient. The spies went in. They got giants. They got all this problem. They're going to kill us. Let's go back to Egypt. Joshua and Caleb believed, but nobody else did. So then they were judged. They'd die off in the wilderness. And then when they went back... The promise was renewed to Joshua that I'm with you. If God made a promise and God is with us, then we know we're okay. It's going to happen. Because God cannot lie and God cannot fail and he has the power to accomplish what he said his word would do. Okay, then the next verse was? Isaiah 35, 3 and 4. Yeah. Encourage the exhausted and strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Okay, God will come, God will save us. Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Okay, so there was a contentment in weaknesses and difficulties and so on. And then 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Well, so the Lord makes us adequate. 1 Peter 1, 13, 14. Okay. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. 
Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. That's a very interesting passage. Notice there the grace is future. The grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we have some grace. We have grace now to be able to live in this sinful world in our unperfected state. And it takes a lot of it, doesn't it? But there's a promise that more grace will come at the revelation of Jesus. There'll be grace that'll so transform us that there'll be no sin in us. We won't even have a single desire that's sinful. Wow. Wow. That'd be a lot easier than the way it is now. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's... So there's more grace coming. Have hope in the second coming. That's why the second coming in the words of institution in 1 Corinthians 11, we talk about proclaiming the Lord's death till he returns. We need to have hope in the second coming. Verse 10. Therefore, okay, now we've really talked about this thorn in the flesh and the grace and the power that comes. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Content, eudokeo, present active, which is a continual state, and it can mean to be well-pleased. Eudokeo, or eudokeo. It's used in 2 Corinthians 5.8. Robert, could you look up 2 Corinthians 5.8? We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Amen. Well pleased. Dr. Martin says this, What can be said is that the fulfillment of God's power comes not in heavenly visions and ecstatic demonstrations, but in earthly weakness. And to mark off... Paul, from his opponents, it is clear that while both groups shared a revelatory experience, Paul, unlike his rivals, does not report a healing to provide the proof of the validity of his apostleship. He talks about his weakness, not his mighty deeds and and his superpower. He also says that, as Dr. Martin, the tribulation list supplements and illustrates Paul's discussion on weakness. We note that the afflictions are endured huper Christu, for the sake of or on behalf of Christ. Such an idea repels the mistaken concept of suffering that has sometimes pervaded church history. Those who have experienced or encouraged self-afflicted wounds endured martyrdom simply as a means to, uh, of seeking to become righteous. That was a problem in, early, in the early church history. There was a cult of martyrdom where people did everything they could to get martyred. There were reports of people volunteering, come on, we want to be killed, kill us, please, because they thought that would make them uh, have some higher status uh, by doing so. And so it was a cult of martyrdom. Um, self-afflicted wombs endured martyrdom simply as a means of seeking to become righteous and practice asceticism which would be severe treatment of the body, solely as a means of securing God's favor, are guilty of emphasizing merit, not faith. That's the exact point I made in this article I just wrote. 
It's works. If you think you do something that's going to make you holy because you did it, then you don't have faith. You have works. You have merit. Human suffering in and of itself does not display divine power. Such bravado only produces rewards for the morbid fanatic or the foolish. The morbid fanatic or the foolish. No, this is for Christ's sake. So we go about our witness and our, our, our life of serving the Lord. And if difficulties and weaknesses and insults and persecutions come, as they did to Paul from his Corinthian enemies, the, hoop, the hyper, the, the super apostles, the high above apostles. But he's strong because in God's providence, that's what God allowed into Paul's life. And Paul, therefore, could endure these things in faith, believing that God was at work, trusting him, receiving grace to help, and therefore the dunamis, the power of the Holy Spirit, is released in Paul's life. Because you might think, how could he do all these things? Beaten so many times, 40 lashes, save one, <laughs> shipwrecked, destitute. I mean, this could, he had to be a tough character. you imagine how tough he had to be? you imagine what somebody looked like after they'd been stoned? I mean, we think it's bad if we get hit in the head with a baseball once. And not much of, yeah, that's, that's bad enough, but a whole bunch of stones, you have bumps and bruises and cuts, and it would be terrible. But it was for Christ's sake, and because of that, the power of God sustained our dear brother Paul. And beloved, the power of God will sustain you. Trust him, believe him, and he's going to take care of you. I don't care what you're going through. That's an encouragement that's for every single Christian to learn from this example that, that the beloved apostle shared with us. Now, today is celebration of the Lord's resurrection, and I'll be preaching from John chapter 20 today. John chapter 20. I went back and looked at all the PowerPoints I had back to 2003 and found that I had not preached on John since for Easter as far as I, long as I've had PowerPoints. So I thought, okay, they probably forgot 2002. So we'll, we'll see you upstairs. God bless.